And we are back with another solo mega variety episode of Content Minded. Right before uh, me and Prude's birthday. And before Christmas Eve, of course. And uh, there's been, you know, uh, I, I just, um, it's been a while. Um, it's been a while because I've been trying to finish the last few chapters of the book. And I'm slowly getting sick of it. And I really want to go back to painting and printmaking. And I just, uh, then I'll have to like get through the editing process and we'll, we'll see what happens. But anyways, please uh, like, share, and subscribe, do all that stuff. And please, if you haven't already, you know, I, I, it would be nice to have uh, some more uh, Patreon subscribers or, or Substack. They're available on both uh, because you'll, you'll, you know, not only will you get the full episode of every content minded, also extra content, but I probably will release a chapter or two or maybe even more of the book when I feel that uh, they're sufficiently edited. So it would really help me out. And yeah, it's, it's really great. Next year, of course, I will try to, the podcast will be, uh, you know, more regular or as regular as you know people were used to up until 2023 so thank you know i appreciate it and of course you know share this around and uh you know this is available on spotify next year i probably i i, I want to go on apple podcast i know prude has that lib sync thing where uh you know you can put in all these platforms but i i feel like if i just get it on apple podcast it would be sufficient. But anyways, you know, we're getting to the uh, holiday season, the Christmas season. And I hope that a lot of you have a, a good Christmas with family and with friends. You know, the past few Christmases have been, in my personal life, but I think for a lot of people, especially during the uh, the Clown Vidian era, they've been ter terrible. Uh, for matters I won't get into, uh, you know, personal matters with, uh, you know, the health of certain family members, I won't get into it, but, you know, and my own personal health as well. Um, last Christmas was not very good. <laughs> my last birthday was not very good, to say the least. But, you know, I plowed through it. And I think that Christmas is a time of reflection. Now, I'm going to get into a lot of topics that some are silly and ridiculous, especially this one topic I want to rant about that's been go making the rounds. It's you know, I'll get into it. I'll get into it. It's, it's it's very odd how this uh, particular meme has been jettisoned into obnoxious amounts of uh, you know emphatic worship. But anyways, we'll get into it. You know, and some content not very particularly fun to talk about. So. I think that Christmas is a time of reflection for most people. I think that it's a time where you can sort of look back. I mean, of course, you know, the true Christian meaning of Christmas. But in it is a time also of personal reflection. As you reflect on the meaning of the holiday. And I think that, you know, it's a time to really look back upon the year that was, which is very difficult now, because it's difficult in the sense that there is so many events that happen 
that is hard to really keep track of. A lot of those events are probably meaningless and superfluous and probably do not deserve the attention that they do. You know, because I remember when people first started to become aware of the way that things were shaping up in the online world, the real, really the precursor of it was the 24-hour news cycle and the way that it would burn out. There, there was this odd burnout rate of the news. And I remember those days. I remember the 2000s or even before, well, somewhat before, that you'd, you know, event an event would last in the public consciousness for the total of a week or maybe a few weeks or even a month. And then it would go by the wayside. Now events last a few days and they go by the wayside. Apart from like the really big, you know, consequential ones. And in a sense, 9-11 was that feeling because I remember like for the rest of the year from December all the way sorry from September all the way to Christmas I remember there was uh you know there was a constant awareness of it I remember vividly coming home that day and uh yeah it was you know but anyways anyways it, it seems that events slip us by and, you know, like me and Prude were saying just the other episode of uh, Digital Archipelago, certain things that you remember, they have this feeling, this odd feeling that they were around, you know, a few years ago or whatever. But no, they happened in the beginning of the year. And so it's very hard to keep track. And it's very hard to assess the meaning of each event because only through the gift of hindsight do we truly know the impact of them. But in a way, 2023, as it comes to a close, has been, for me at least, a year that has been fraught with anxieties and still the uncertainty of devoting yourself to a longer work and having to sacrifice other things, but also truly finding things and experiencing um, a variety of different emotions and things that I thought were utterly impossible on Christmas 2022. And so my life has changed a lot in just the span of a year, you know? Especially after the fact, I think this is what really clinches it, is that for the past three years, because in Canada, you got to remember, the measures were three years. My, I admit that my life was uh, less than functional in terms of the normal human experience. And a lot of that was because, you know, it was a product of what I was doing you know, my whole life being mediated more or less through the screen. And, you know, I think that such a huge level of stasis, in a sense, you know, to have that, then to have this dramatic switch into activity, into life, into love, into charging through the uncertainties of everything, 
of, of, of going from coasting by on live streams to actually, you know, creating something to do more writing in a year than a lot of, you know, a lot of previous years. Yeah, it's, it's very dramatic in a sense. And I think that hopefully next year will be similar. And there's many things that I want to do. There's many ideas I want to paint or write about. Of course, I'm slowly getting burned off from writing. And, and there's many things that I feel will happen next year that will necessitate a constant engagement with the, the greater society as a whole, with the greater news cycle, with the greater stream of content, with the online world. But this year, I've noticed that for the first time, I would say, in my own personal sense, I've, I've started to slowly become disengaged with a lot of the, the rat race of being into the flow of things, into the swarm. And I've noticed that there's a lot of trends in content, in posting, a lot of like memes and a lot of discourses that I kind of like don't feel the need to engage in. It's something I, um, a, a very good uh, mutual of mine, who's a very good writer, a billionaire psycho. I remember he DM'd me once. He said, Gio, you know, the past six months, you've really unlocked the keys to, to good posting. And I said, yeah, because, you know, I have other things to think about. I have another, you know, person to think about in my life. And I've really sort of tried to cut away a lot of the superficiality. Now I still post like a lot of stupid memes or whatever. Even today, I I don't know why I find it funny. I these old men, these stock photos. Because I'm, you know, twenty twenty three. Also, I started the stock photo trend up again, and it's like these old men. They said they're saying to each other, "I hear they're putting the woke away." And I, I don't know if it's a jab at AA, but I I don't know. I think it's kind of funny. I thought normie conservatives say stuff like that. You know, they're putting the woke away. But, you know, so in a sense, you know, I've been trying to cut away at the superficialities and I'm trying to focus on effort posting. But even when I effort post, I, I notice that I have this weird attitude. I want to be seen because being seen translates into, you know, viewers, translates into, uh, you know, pay pigs, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, hopefully it will translate into book sales. But, um... You know, it's, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want to be seen. It's a very weird thing. I, I want to be seen, but I don't want to be seen. Or, or rather, I don't want the wrong type of attention. Like recently, Kafefi Anon, he had this thread about race relations and it was screen capped on, on, uh, on Reddit. And, well, I will talk about Reddit later, but, you know, he was destroying these people and then they had this community note and they got rid of the community note. And he just, like, annihilated them. It was incredible. But, you know, that thread, had, I think, had, like, million or two million or whatever views. And it's just, like, these those terrible people, like, you know, freaking out on it. And then he was, like, just spitting facts. And it was, yeah. So I, I want to avoid that. And I had a little bit of that um, 
on this effort post and this long post I had about this stupid meme going around, which I'll probably get into uh, soon. But I, I, yeah, so anyways, let's not pollute my uh, train of thought here with the meaning of the this year. So all in all, there's been a lot of ups and downs, mostly ups. And hopefully next year, there will be a continuation of this rate of work, of understanding things, of, you know, deepening personal things like my love life and so forth. And hopefully that I get the chance to reflect on things because that's, I, I think, a consequence of a lot of this is that I've noticed when you disengage, when you choose not to comment on things, there's always the game there, right? There's the game of, I want to be seen, but I don't want to be seen. I want to be recognized, but I only want to be recognized for things in a certain way. And I don't want them to be misconstrued. But I notice when you become very selective, though, and you start to slowly shed things that were normal in terms of the sort of palette of what your brand or presence or conglomeration of content and various thought forms that you project out onto the world and become very selective you start to realize like what really does matter and what what doesn't and there's and i still have this thing like maybe i shouldn't have engaged with this stupid reddit archetype that these leftoids and these irony cells are memeing and it's very strange but i'll, I'll get into that because there's something there's other things that I want to talk about that are more meaningful than that. And I think it's very interesting how when you do go through a process of reflection and disengagement and the selection of choosing what you what you want to put out there and what you wish to engage with rather than not, I notice that there is... A strange thing that happens where not only do you become more serious, but your patience for ephemeral nonsense, you know, is, is lessened. And you notice that people will respect you for it. Because there is always the demand to constantly engage. There is a demand to constantly engage... And you never have a chance to really reflect on what you're doing. And there's never a chance to truly have a moment of reprieve. And there's never a chance to truly say to yourself, Okay, what are the excesses of what I'm doing? And what are the things that are meaningful? And there's even things that people talk about with such an intensity for a few days and then they disappear. And then you realize that maybe there should be a deeper conversation or a deeper analysis that should be conducted when it comes to these things that just things that just flash by the timeline. But then, you know, maybe things deserve to have such a short shelf life. But they're not worth your, your engagement. They're not worth your precious brain cells into extrapolating on. But the problem is that people 
it's almost like there's a force that got there's an unseen hand that guides you towards debating and extrapolating and you need to have a take over this and people demand it because everyone else is doing it and of course if you want engagement then it's this this sort of like devil's bargain when it comes to content i think what 2023 exposed for me is that we're all sort of just riding on this wave whether we like to admit it or not and whatever comes out of the end of that can either be something meaningful or something ephemeral. Now, for example, you remember the ginger beer guy? The, the what's his name? Oliver Anthony, Oliver Anthony. Uh, rich man, rich, uh, what's it? Rich man, poor man. You can't remember. Rich man north of Richmond. There you go. That's the one. That's the one. That feels like it was a thousand years ago. And maybe back in the day it would have been like a feature on like in youth culture or celebrity culture. It would have been featured on like TMZ, which it probably was. Uh, but it would have like TMZ had more of an importance. Or it would have been featured on um, MTV News with Kurt Lauder. Right? Like it <clears throat> It would be something of that nature. It would be uh, like something that is determined in part by the popular culture. But was really, you know, I mean, I think people have this realization. Now, it's very strange. Very strange. They, like, I'm talking about Turbo Normies. I'm not talking about us. Uh, high IQ, uh, intelligent, brilliant, beautiful. I'm, I'm joking, you know. I'm not, like, you know, schizos and... People who are, you know, smarter than the average norm, norm scum, right? I know I shouldn't be saying terms like normie because it's alienating or whatever. But, uh, you know, people notice this pattern where they're like, oh, this guy's an interesting plant. Like, these memes seem forced. And there's always been forced memes. For all of time, there's been forced memes. But I think the reason why people were so vicious uh, towards... Oliver Anthony, but also towards other forms of forced meme content that is probably churned out by some kind of, um, some kind of, like, industry plant, you know, some kind of, like, board meeting or whatever, and, and people are so used to something else. It's funny because there's this big, like, I think, I don't know how I came across this. I think it was one of these things that the algorithm just spit out. But there is this, like, let me look it up. There is this, like, big makeup YouTuber. Or I think she does makeup. But she's, like, you know, normie content, right? But, like, and I think she's, like, a, she just had a kid. What's her name? I'm looking this up because she had a great video that just popped into my algorithm. It sort of broke containment because it, it dealt with this topic about the development of the Internet. Now, people are just used to something else. And she was saying how, like, the internet... And, of course, you know, sometimes, you know, you can't expect people to have the most philosophic takes on a very a very deep topic or to have the precise philosophic language. Raw Beauty Christie, that's her name. Raw Beauty Christie. The internet is called Why You Feel Dead Inside After 2020. That the internet maturated into this corralled open uh, you know no longer is this open zone but rather it is corralled into social media and the various 
phenomenon that happens, the various psychological problems that are plagued by people who really didn't get in early on the wave of content production on the internet. And so they have no psychic defense mechanism. It's what a concept, uh, a concept that my friend Matthew Stout calls psychical pollution or psychic pollution. That you should guard yourself against it. And she was saying like how I don't feel, it doesn't feel fun to post anymore. It has to be calculated. You worry about offending people. You're worried about what your audience wants. And also in general, the internet is very hostile. There's no longer this, in other words, what she was getting at without the precise words to articulate it, is there's no longer this utopian sentiment around the possibility of global connectedness and the possibility of people creating careers literally from their basements or their rooms or whatever by the purity of their content. And it's funny because 2020, you know, the, the real after the clown-demic, you know, it really sunk in, I think, the ephemeralness of a lot of forms of content or a lot of things that we are distracted with in the online world. And I've certainly, and, and you, know, I, you know, as much as I don't want to talk, you know, I don't want to phrase it in this term, but, you know, when you, when you do finally, uh, you know, when you, you find someone that is on the same wavelength as you and, you know, you really do... Um, develop a meaningful relationship, you do start to think about things differently. There's always this meme about, like, you know, uh, you know like, as soon as your longhouse, quote-unquote, your content suffers, and you become, like, this weird girlfriend guy, and you, you go through, like, John Lennon with Yoko Ono, or, like, Dave Mustaine after he had a family and stopped doing drugs. It's, like, this very weird... Um, process that you go through but I, I you know I thought that was going to happen because I was always of the you know true self purity mindset but I think that it's not that your content suffers it's not that your posting suffers it just becomes different you start to realize that there are things more important in this life than just you know than just like the average you know SHIT post right you know what I mean that there has to be a meaning to what you're doing. And, and many things can provoke that. Not just like, you know, you know, first crumb of, you know, love or affection that you get. I'm just saying that there's many things that can do this. But anyways, this video, um, Raw Beauty Christie, she was talking about how things are different and how there's a burnout and how the world really experienced this strange form of online burnout. And it was funny how, you know... She's got, like, how many subscribers? How many subscribers? Um, she has, oh, 1.13 million subscribers. And I think her content, she does, um, makeup and, um, videos of, like, MLMs and reviews. And she had a video where she had her, her, um, her baby... And, uh, you know, I mean, this is basic vlogger, you know, glamour beauty industry um, content, you know what I mean? But I really like this video, you know? I mean, oh, she talked about her mental health. Um, you know, I really like this video because it's funny how 
someone that you would consider like you know a turbo normie right like this is you know i guess i don't mean to insult her but you know the definition of a nor like normie friendly content or whatever you know almost saying word for word something that byungchul han would say in the burnout society and it's really it really struck me how you know, the conditions of what we're living through, that is what provokes this sort of um, meaningful thinking around what we're doing, what we're experiencing. And even someone who probably doesn't spend all of her time reading theory cell literature um, can come upon the same insight. And it's very interesting it's very, it's very interesting how I've noticed that there's a, a wave of content, uh, and I think like even huge, like huge podcasts like that Theo Vaughn guy talks about this type of stuff. Like people that talk about like depression and loneliness and like why I'm still a, a virgin neat doomer uh, at the age of whatever. I notice that there's like a whole rash of this type of YouTube content. Or that old man giving life advice who's like 90 years old or something like that with the beard. There's something very strange about, uh, strange about it. And that back in the day, millennials had this complex, and it, and it came from Gen Xers, of like hating life and like, I'm so sad, blah, 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 but I'm hiding it, but it's ironic. But it's like, it's cool to be depressed, but it's ironic. Whereas Zoomers are consuming content that's just full on, no, this is terrible, life sucks, and we suck, and and I can't get over these problems because we live in a world that is predicated on you never getting over your problems. And it's very, very funny that way. Maybe I'm just being uncharitable, but I do notice the sea change. But anyways, I was talking about the nature of posting and how uh, I, I'm distracting myself, and how really things are changing now. Now, they're not necessarily changing for the better, but they're changing in some way. There's an acute awareness of the reality of posting that sometimes can be dangerous. You know, especially in right-wing politics. Like, for example, they I saw this on it was on it was on Twitter, of course. I saw this clip where you know what, I'll pay wall, I'll pay wall, I'll pay wallet, but I'll talk about it. It's about the, this John Oliver interview, but in the paywalled version, I will talk about this um, John Oliver, I, some, someone I, I just have an unyielding hatred for. Uh, he he, clip, he clips this um, live stream between two uh, very significant uh, e-celebs on the political right, or, well, I mean, one of them, to describe him as right-wing in the current age is kind of very, you know, prob it's problematic, but, like, very interesting. Uh, one of them is a certified old head. The other, I guess he's been around long enough that you can call him an old head. But anyways, I noticed that there's a lot of ephemera that gets amplified because of the cycles of content. And and so, for example, the, this is my theory. And I've, I've been getting distracted. I, I've just, I've regained my thought, you know, because th this is why you people like, I guess you people like to hear me talk because... I always loop into distractions and then I find my way back again. It's sort of like 
you know, I'm a hiker on the Appalachian Trail and you sort of lose yourself, but you know, because you bought the compass at a, a you know, uh, you bought like the, the, you bought the better compass that's recommended by, you know, bushcraft YouTubers at some pawn shop instead of like going to Walmart or buying quote unquote military grade. Cause you know that a lot of like, it's actually pretty tragic. This is what people that are in the know tell me. Um, they, they say that like when you get military grade that people like normies think like, Oh my God, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's like going to last a nuclear bomb. Right. Um, but no, actually a lot of military grade stuff is like pure crap compared to the, a lot of the domestic products. And that's actually very tragic how the American military, for example, when they landed on the, uh, what's it called the the ar the nato round that you know they they consider things like it's lighter you can carry more it's more economical rather than um the ak-47 rounds or other rounds of foreign militaries where you know they're heavier they have more stopping power it's like no the american government's like you know what we don't need stopping power we just need something that works and we need something fast and, if, and you know the the actual like because, you know, like, this is what me and Mike of Paul talked about, which is the episode I will release. You know, the the first models of of um, of M16s were notorious for jamming and being unreliable. And imagine being ambushed by the North Vietnamese and, and uh, you have to clear like a barrel, a stock barrel jam or something in the middle of the in the middle of the jungle. Like, see, this is insane stuff, right? That just it's it's the problem of industry. And it's the problem of, uh, you know, and I'm not saying like, uh, I'm not trying to be like a Lulbert where like government is, is inherently inferior to private industry. Because as we know, private industry, as it relates to military and defense, has also cut corners. You know, but I'm saying that, you know, wouldn't you, you have a better round with more stopping power that can, that is with a more reliable rifle platform that can aid the American servicemen in their, you know, in their task, especially since, you know, since Vietnam onwards, this, well, I mean, you can argue that Korea wasn't exactly, but, you know, let's say for argument's sake, from Vietnam onwards, we just, you know, the American government's just been throwing their GIs into uh, endless battles that, in wars that don't have any real, like, hardcore geopolitical strategy except for, you know, even people at the top, right? Even people at the top. Uh, you know, it's funny. If you want actual... You know, they should sponsor me. They should sponsor me. I will definitely shill for them. Because uh, the guy that runs the Twitter account, we've been mutuals for a long time. But if you go to chrischiki.com, really some of the best milsop. Mil military surplus. They have really exotic uniforms and, and kit stuff from foreign militaries. I believe they just released a line from Iraq. You know, you could buy like one of those helmets from, from Ara the Iran-Iraq war. So go to chrischiki.com. They're on Twitter. They release these fun little videos. They have this Christmas video where the head guy, is the head guy Seth? He had like, you know, one of those Spetsnaz pistols, right? The, uh, what, oh, what's it called? Was it called the, uh, I, I'm going to get embarrassed. Let me look it up. Yeah, it's the Makarov. The Makarov. I, you know, I I assume that that was a made-up name because of Call of Duty. 
But no, it's not the actual, you know, the old school Makarov. So Santa's giving them the military gear under their Christmas tree in the office. And then the Krishiki guy comes in and, he, and uh, he starts popping off at Santa with the Makarov. And then Santa just like, he, he doesn't get hit. He just dematerializes. And it's like, oh, it's so funny. It's so funny. Um, they do these little bits. One of them was about um, this guy buying Millsop for like a whole gang. And he's got the ski mask. He looks like an IRA member. And he's like, so uh, you're you're buying this for your family to go camping? And he just like looks at him. He goes, okay, I'm leaving now. It's your for <laughs> Uh, but please, you know, they're friends of ours. Go and, you know, go and support guys that, you know, maybe I'll put a link in the description, cruzcheeky.com. If you're into Millsup, I mean, uh, not many militaries in the world has my size. Maybe one day the American military will have my size. Well, you never know. You never know. I know I should make this stupid American fat joke, but you know. Anyways, anyways, how did I get onto this? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's like that. It's like when you... Efficiency max, you can actually efficiency max to when it costs human lives. So the point I'm trying to make it again, it's been minutes now, is that back in the day, uh, there was a sense of wonder and enjoyment and frivolity to things, especially in the internet age. And so this is what this YouTuber was saying, this raw beauty, what's her name? I can't believe I forgot her name again. See, this is how this is how absent-minded. I'm playing the bit of like the absent-minded professor, Raw Beauty Christie. Or rather, I'm unsure of myself. I don't want to screw things up because I know it's in my head, but I, I want to confirm. Like for example, I knew it was the Makarov, but I, it's like a that sounds a bit too video gamey. So it's like I, it sounds a bit too memey. You know, the whole like poor Chan K, like the obsession with anything Soviet Union, right? So I had to look it up. She was saying, like, back in the day when it came to meme culture, you had memes that were elevated that were very, like, what you would say, like, monosyllabic or very, like, simplistic and one-dimensional. They had, like, one function. And they were elevated, and a lot of it was because of the writer's strike back in, I believe it was... 2010? Or 20... I think... I forget what year it was. But you had, like, early YouTubers... Like, that had hits for, like, one video. Like, Numa Numa Guy, or Tron Guy, or Damn Daniel Dan. Like, th these things, they were, like, they would be nothing nowadays. They would be one-hit wonders. They would be, like, one bit on TikTok, and that's it. My good friend Josh Lekatch, who actually, uh, you know, he's been on the show, he had to delete this tweet because this kid reached out to him. It was the kid that was, you know, complaining that he got rejected from Harvard because he's white. And he asked Josh to delete the video on Twitter from, you know, it's a TikTok video that the kid recorded himself. And people were like really mad at Josh. He had 36 million views. And it was this whole discourse about Harvard kid being rejected because he's white. And of course, when black Twitter gets it in, you know, their ethno-narcissism, then you know what's going to happen, right? That's the point. Like, it's just a momentary blip. But like, damn Daniel Dam, or Tron Guy, or whoever, Pruane Pruane was on late night talk shows. Remember Pruane 2 Forever? And he had to quit because he was no longer a 13-year-old boy, and it was no longer cute. 
And I'm actually sad. I, I kind of like Pruane, you know? I remember, like, me and my friends, we would, like, quote his videos all the time. It was funny. Like, uh, you know, prawn isn't good anyways. Or you have the video where he's he's hanging out with 50 Cent, then he's, like, bashing 50 Cent. That was hilarious, right? Or, like, the, the infamous uh, Obama election night in 2008. Oh, yeah, Republicans got school. Obama 08. Like, I remember that. That was incredible. But anyways, you know, everyone has to grow up, right? So, like, these people, they she was saying, like, nowadays that wouldn't even clock. It would just be nothing. And my theory in terms of content is the reason that people were pissed off is because now, all of a sudden, the internet age, and the Oliver Anthony, and also this, like, fedora, this, like, nerd archetype guy, which I'll get into. I have a huge mega rant about that, so this will be... You know, after, I'll have a music break um, of a Philip Daniel music break. You know, this forced meme, out of all the forced memes, and who knows if like, some test group or some, you know, all of these, like, uh, social scientists that work for big corporations and, uh, you know, think tanks and these, like, market groups, they're, they're, they test these theories and these, you know, what can really make people tick. And let's push them in a certain direction. You know, like even uh, Cass Sunstein, which was Obama's info czar, you know, he had this thing too with this. He said, like, maybe we should experiment with planting different conspiracies to, like, counteract the, the ones that we don't want people to talk about, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, the Oliver Anthony thing was clearly, I mean, just clearly a blatant industry plant, right? Like, I mean, it's just, you know, and if anyone sues me over it, then I don't care. It's the, it, hey, it's the truth, to quote Ghost of Gabalus Radio. Hey, it's the truth. Uh, <laughs> I love when you used to say that. So the point being is that people had this experience in the internet age where now that the average person was creating content on the grassroots level, we sort of lulled ourselves to sleep in terms of what is staged or what is false or, or what is authentic as opposed to what's being driven by or algo boosted by corporations or even created by whole industries. Like there was this video, um, I said that like this video went hard on MRA blogs in 2012. It was this video of this woman like trying to like, uh, you know, trying to have a, a thing with this guy in this washroom. You've seen the video and she's like forcing herself on him. He's rejecting her. And he's like, and she's like persisting. And so the MRA people, they're like, did the ideological point about like, yo, see, see, women can do it too. You know, I can't say for YouTube, but it's funny because that was actually staged in 2010 by some like Dutch PSA group, government group thing to bring awareness to domestic issues, you know? And it's funny because like people were saying after many years when people would just like, like a lot of these MRAs and MGTOWs, they would like take it at face value. After years and years, people are like, why is there a camera in the washroom? I thought that was illegal in most places. And it's like, yeah, you know, because it's staged. So anyways, my point being is that people lulled themselves into this sense of complacency. But now that we're seeing it again, people are having this, like, all of a sudden it's like, the mujra is touching their third eye, and they're awakening, and it's like they've arrived at this realization, and it's like an Alex Gray painting. You know what I mean? It's like, but the reality is that we've had this time in the internet 
where we thought it was a final frontier. And we thought that we could create and we could craft the culture. And that ultimately memes and content and culture and whole productions live, die, and get reborn out of our whims. And that it's a pure democratic phenomenon. In reality, it's not. But for a period, I would say from between, I want to say, 1999 to about 2013, 14, 15. Like, till late-term Obama period. People truly did feel this. But now, there's a form of new skepticism that comes along with a sincere realization that actually, a lot of what we are seeing is being determined by corporations, by algorithms, by unseen forces. You know, the dead internet theory definitely is real, at least to an extent. Maybe it's not as real as people like to get this whole, like, spooky, you know, the X-Board theory on 4chan. Like, it's, like, spooky scary. No, it's, like, it's actually a real thing. And we may be interacting with bots every single day. But the point being is that people are starting to realize, or rather... You know, it's like few people are realizing that it was harder, that it's harder to detect obvious and blatant forced memes and plants and, and things that are being moved along by Silicon Valley or by other corporations or by governments even. It's harder to detect when you give people this promise of authenticity and promise of free frontier... Um, totally democratic reign over the means of, of content production. Because it was harder to realize that when, you know, I remember back in the day before the internet dominated people's lives, back in the age of celebrity, from like the 70s to the 90s, to the, like the early 2000s even, the age of like the mass pop star celebrity, or a actor, actress, whatever, people would like worship celebrities, but it was kind of easy to tell that, okay, why are people pushing this person on us? It's easier to detect the hand. Because then people are like, yeah, man, the record companies, man, the corporations, man. It's very easy to say that, you know, these people are being forced on us. And that these people are being forced upon the normies. And the normies worship them at the slop trough. You know, we sing into the side on the production line. We are unholy swine. Impurity to find, right? To quote the band Nevermore, R.A.P. World Dane. That was a great lyric. That was from the song Engines of Hate by Nevermore. Uh, I, I always loved when you sang that bit. There was a guy that made a music video about it that was quite good. Um, we sing into the sky on the production line. We are in holy swine, impurity to find. Anyways, yeah, so, you know, it was very... And it followed with the 1990s trend of cynicism. The, the late 90s trend of cynicism, where Hollywood and, and even the music industry, they were all questioning, the, like, the, it was like this weird form of institutional critique, where it's like, question everything, question reality, you know, question, you know, you know, the kids were listening to bands like Fear Factory, where it was, you know, about like the, the techno dystopianism, and they were watching films like The Matrix, and maybe they were watching anime like Lane, and they were, like, watching, uh, you know, um, films like Johnny, yeah, uh, Johnny well, Mnemonic, but, yeah, Johnny Mnemonic, but also, like, Donnie Darko and American Beauty. 
I talk about this in my book a little bit. But then things change. Now it's you have to believe again. And they gave you this promise of believing in the content that you consume being authentic. And maybe a lot of it starts out authentically, but then it turns to be this like a weird... Like, why is it that these Twitter accounts that are being boosted, that are, that are being given to us, that seem to always have the same number of likes and followers, and maybe they're being boosted on Reddit, maybe they're botted. Why is, especially the, uh, around like the Transformers, if you know what I mean, a lot of those posts, like there was this one post about the uh, typical like Transformer uh, impossible woman cope about J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter and people were doing this thing about like I'm I don't know what to feel because I grew I'm a, a terminal millennial brain and I grew up on Harry Potter and it's this thing where like the uh, you know the Transformers like throwing the uh, the sorting hat into the trash and it's got like uh, I think it's got like a sixty eight thousand to like a hundred thousand likes and so many millions of views for this kitschy neoliberal kitsch cartoon. Not even worthy of my book. Not even worthy to put in my book. This is how vulgar this thing is. But the point being is that, you know, everything, it's, it's you know, there's memes, right? There's memes about this. Um, you know, Goku says trans rights. 100,000 likes, 30,000 retweets, 200 million views. Like, you know, or not like whatever, 5 million views. And, it's, and it goes on and on. It's true. It's, it's even under the age of Elon. They're still botting. They're still being boosted. They're being boosted on Reddit. And, and people really enjoy the slop. They enjoy feeding at this trough of self-affirmation. Because content nowadays, it always says yes. And this is what Byung-Chul Han says, right? It always says yes. It never says no. It always says yes to your rights. Never no. Never question things. It's never about question everything. It's more, and I know it's like, this sounds like a cliche point. It sounds like that stupid Charlie Chaplin movie, The Dictator, right? Like that was such a, oh my God, I could go on forever about that stupid rant. Like about like, uh, you know, I mean, and that was like the normie, like neoliberal kitsch sentimentality of the day, right? <laughs> Before neoliberalism was a thing. But you know what I mean? Like it, it's always the, in the affirmative tone. Power says yes to you. It doesn't say no. It's not a power over. It's not a restrictive power. It is yes to enabling your own sense of wallowing in what is a disordered life. That's what it is. It says yes in the affirmative to you being a broken subject. A broken soul. But you don't realize that. You don't realize it because... You are in that same slop heap. You don't realize you're a broken soul. Because brokenness is celebrated and fetishized. And and uh, it's held up as a politi as, as, you know, politicized identity that you don't even have to participate in in terms of, of, uh, of a behavioral level. It's just the vibe. You're, you know, I feel this gender one day, I feel that the other day. It's, it's very much like vibe orientated that doesn't have any sort of comportment attached to that marker of identity. A apart from, you know, the ones, where the cases where it does, and it severely affects your life, and it leads you down what you think is this, like... Anyways, I'm getting too much in it. Let's take a music break, and, and I'll, I'll come back with another uh, Normie Rage Bait rant I've been storing up 
Speaking of disordered life and forced memes. So anyways, hit it, Philip. a good selection by philip daniel some of his recent stuff um you know me and philip i feel bad he keeps dming me vestidiously but i i tend to like um because i feel like i have more of a friendship towards philip and i i tend to you know you know some, sometimes you tend to take your friends for granted and i guess i'm on this theme of like while well, this is episode of the year where nothing happens and the, we experience the flow of time. And, you know, at Christmas, you always think of these reconciliatory thoughts. And, you know, Philip, I, I, it's funny because uh, he, he DM'd me once. And I don't know if I should talk about it publicly, but, you know, but he said something similar on the TL. He's like, you know, I hope that we could still be, uh, you know, friends and cordial, even though we have disagreements and things. It was about the, the Israel versus Palestine thing, and I don't exactly disagree with him. I see the pitfalls of Islamization. It's just that, you know, I, I like I said, it's very hard because of the pro-Palestine side being, you know, leftoids, and there's a sort of uh, very weird, and this is why, uh, you know, this is why in some ways I've, I, I was compelled to write my book because there's this weird public moralization that gets, you know, imposed upon pre-existing political categories that are then notched up to the nth degree. And the sort of debate in the E-Write about the Israel versus Palestine thing, <clears throat> where, like, you have on the one side this weird intersection between identitarians or, quote-unquote, I mean the pejorative term being quote-unquote wignats and like third worldists or people that are you know fans of third world liberation movements and on the other side you have like a weird sort of um a weird a weird sort of deference towards uh that one nation in the middle east that i also don't exactly agree with because of the real horrors that are being committed and it's like, again, I take a moderate position that slants on the actual humanitarian cost against these people. And we could say, like, well, you know, Geo, 
a lot of people in your group, they're like, you know, millions must, blah, blah, blah. But I'm saying, but then again, it's like if you kick them out, then they're going to go to Europe and America. And you can't just, I, you know, this is a sticky ethical area. Maybe I, you know, I, I could be optics cocking or whatever. But like indiscriminately redacting like thousands of people that, you know, without getting at the root of like, okay, you want to go after the Hamas or whatever. Um, but then like, you know, the, the, the real thing is, is horrific. And what's been done to them is also horrific, but I mean, paying for the blood of one with the blood of thousands is I think a logic that is very alien to the current, um, Western mind. And even though we have these, like, very lurid, like, memes and revenge fantasies and, you know, like, borderline misanthropic doom posting that entails the sort of, like, G-word idol uh, misanthropy that would be required to, like, a total upheaval, the, the likes of which... And, you know, people talk about this, and it's like, that's, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I think it's like, is it a meme or is it, like, a policy that gets lost in translation? Is it irony or is it a sincere conviction? Or rather, is it a response from a place of total powerlessness? Right? Because we would joke about it. And like even normies use the millions meme. You know what I mean? They use, I've, I've seen like even leftists use Chud Jacks. But I think that, um, yeah, but to see it like, to see it when it comes to two powers that don't necessarily have our interests in mind, but one happens to be supported by elites that also don't have interest in our, our interest in mind that's putting it lightly and then to see the people that are supporting the other side who also don't have in, our interests in mind not just like white people but like you could say western civilization as a whole but yeah mostly let's face it it's like you know they they both <laughs> you know they yeah so it's it's very difficult so anyways i my point being is that i see philip daniel's argument i know like he's very open about his identity um but you know we may have disagreements about the the actions of that one nation in the Middle East, but he does have a point about you can't go too far in the other side because then you'll have very, very, not very nice bedfellows in the other side. And so it's, uh, I, know, I'm, I know I'm taking like the mushy middle fence sitter centrist position, but I like to think it's a sensible centrist position. And, uh, but then because I've, I've noticed this sort of, it was there during the Clownvidian era, it was there during Russia versus Ukraine, it still is, this leftist, uh, politics of kitschified moralization that i call in my book there's this like emphatic response and then it becomes this like weird redditified the heck and wholesome chungus uh thing where it's like i'm so heck and cool and valid and i put like the palestinian flag in my bio next to my pronouns it's just, you know what i mean and i think like that type of politics negates the real actual material human cost on the ground and we saw this with ukraine Right? Like, I mean, whether, like, okay, yes, I mean, there are people in the dissident right, you know, there are people that probably won't have me on their podcasts, right? I'm not going to name names, but you know the ones who are pro-Ukrainian. But I think that to the, like, I've always maintained this position, even though it's the memes, it's the, you know, the, you know, Putin, Vatnik meme, blah, blah, blah. But I've always maintained that when it comes to the actual Ukrainian nationalists, not these like Western psyop plants, then, you know, I mean, I maintain a deferential respect 
because they're really, you know, they're in a hard place. And now they're being abandoned by the West. So that sort of realization is terrifying. But anyways, yeah, so I don't know why I'm going, maybe, I don't know if I should, but, you know, like, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know, like, people disagree with me on that take, uh, you know, and like I say, if I disagree with Philip on, uh, you know, this particular conflict, then that's fine, and we're still friends, and, you know, uh, and I think this is the problem nowadays, this is, I, I like, again, it, it's like that J.K. Rowling uh, abominable cartoon, the Harry Potter, anti-Harry Potter cartoon by a uh, impossible or beyond woman uh that you know it's like you can't separate like just because philip may not agree with my deferential take towards the palestinians does not negate the fact that you know he truly is a brilliant mind and he's a transcendental composer and you know what i mean like it i i think there's this odd occurrence that happens where it, it goes along with the whole point i was making before about the demand to always say yes and to be affirmative and positive, which is leading into this meme that has been forced upon us lately that I felt like I have to give a genealogy on. I had a long post where I kind of did. I laid out my argument and well, all these weirdo people got in my mentions and, you know, uh, well, I'll talk about it. I'll talk about it. Before that, it's very funny how to, to jump off from the previous discussion because it really all relates to everything about the flow of internet time and the flow of events on the internet. It's something that Mark Fisher said. And uh, it's funny because my good, my good, good friend, uh, and Julius on Twitter, you know, I always mention him because he really is truly a transcendental poster. Um, Augurist. You can find it on Twitter. Uh, at A-U-G, so Aug, like in August, U-R-E-U-S-T, A-U-G-U-R-E-U-S-T, Augurist, M. Ange. I, I, his old name was Anhulius, right? Or Anhulius. And he had this point, and he was responding to, if you know, um, you know, fa fan of the show, friend of the show, Fishy Frenzy, who is a British, uh, I, I don't want to say uh, Amarna post, because, like, you know, technically Amarnaites do not exist, if you know the lore. But, you know, Frenzied Fish, he's a good, you know, he's a good friend of the, he's a, I, he's been a mutual of mine for a long time. He's followed me for quite a long time. And, you know, he's a, you know, a very, a, a well, a very, uh, a valued contributor and poster to the digital archipelago sphere. Oh my God, do we have a sphere? I want to create a sphere, you know, I want to break through the, the monotony of the, the sort of monotony, it's not monotony, that's a different, well, so yeah, sorry, I mentioned, I mentioned, you know, anime, uh, you know, anime union people, and uh, yeah, all of a sudden I have Neotni. That's a Freudian slip, right? Uh, but no, the Neot, the, <laughs> the monotony, monotony of the sort of, uh, the, the main cliques in the dissident right, or the E-right, as I like to call it. Maybe me and Prude can make a play, who knows, right? We can uh, have a little group and, you know, have people we trust. And there you go, people that are quality posters. To which Frenzied Fish and Julius are quality posters. So Frenzied Fish says, Mark Fisher says in Capitalist Realism, Chapter 7, that it's the sense that to get by in the digitalizing society, you must give yourself a kind of memory disorder. So I, I think even uh, people like Graham Hancock had more of a spiritual lens of forgotten civilizations where he said, we live in a society of mass amnesia. But he was talking about like anthropology and 
forbidden anthropology and stuff like that. Not, you know, what Mark Fisher was talking about. Um, to get by in this digitalizing setting, you must give yourself a kind of memory disorder to cope with the rapid change and abundance of junk information. You must forget specifics but hold to standards. His example was more of the amnesiac craze of the 2000s with Born and Eternal Sunshine, so the Born Identity Trilogy. Uh, was it? There was four movies? There was three. I think there was three. And Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Specifically with Born, his body has kept his reflexes, but his mind remembers nothing. Although there was that one with uh, Jeremy Reiner that they did. Um, in the conditions, so quote, in the conditions of ideological precarity, for, forgetting becomes of an... Oh, sorry, let me let me rephrase that. In the condition, I I my my tongue is a bit parsed because I was just uh, believe it or not, I was lifting weights before this. In the condition of ideological precarity, forgetting becomes an adaptive strategy. Mark Fisher, Capitalist Realism, page fifty-two, and I highly encourage you reading Capitalist Realism. But I would I would actually just read the book. Here's what you got to do when it comes to Mark Fisher: just read the book. Don't go to a lefty video essayist. There's a million of them. There's guys that may have, like, you know, good information, but then, are, you know, there's that guy Plastic Pills. And people are like, gee, you should talk to him. But, like, I remember this one interview with him with this other bread tuber. And I'm like, yeah, this guy's, like, a typical... I don't want to say... I don't want to bash anybody, but, you know, he had, like, the standard, like, left anarchist opinions and stuff like that. And But he's a, he's a good resource, though. I mean, if you had to go... If you had to see any video essayist on capitalist realism, him, and I think Titus Vincora had one about, he has a few about Mark Fisher. But if you want to like get any good information about essays by Deleuze and or, um, or, or Mark Fisher, I would highly recommend, um, what's his, what's, what's the channel called? I think cinema, not cinema theory, um, film philosophy or film theory with Titus Vincora. He had this like kitschy little intro that I find kind of addicting. Um, I think it was like Flickr theory or film theory. It was like Flickr theory with Titus Vincor. It was like that's and he sang it himself. It was kind of cute. Um, I know. Listen, I'm describing another man's work as cute. I'm just saying, like, listen, I don't have any of that. You know, there's a hermeneutics of suspicion when you you frame things in this you know affectionate manner as a man. I I feel should buck that trend you know but yeah so him and plastic pills probably the best resources i would stay away from plastic pills as personal opinion opinions but you know I, I, that's just from a right-wing perspective so it's not you know but i think he is an invaluable resource in terms of breaking down so i think we do have that uh, people have told me this that you know i'm pretty good at breaking down uh complex theory but i i hope i am i hope i am so then and julius my good friend and julius uh, quoted him with a screen cap, and one of them has a picture of The Scream by Edvard Munch, one of my favorite artists ever. And one of my other favorite artists, um, a, a picture by H.R. Geiger, or Giger. And uh, he says, his PhD dissertation... So, yeah, my point being is that just read Capitalist Realism. but It's a short book before you get it secondhand by some theory cell. That's, you know, especially some bread tuber. Whatever you do, do not venture into BreadTube to find very good resources on Mark Fisher, because then you're just going to get a bunch of muddle-headed, um, crappy analysis that is filtered through an ideological lens. And, uh, you know, I believe, this is a controversial, but these are the same, Not I'm not talking about plastic pills. I'm not talking about Titus Vincor. 
I'm not talking about people even on YouTube that break down philosophy that have touched upon Mark Fisher. I'm talking specifically about these aging millennial British Britpopper leftist hipsters like that one guy, I'm not going to name. These are the people that, in my opinion, helped end, helped Mark Fisher sunset by canceling him. Okay? It was a redacting by, put it this way, the unfortunate passing of Mark Fisher was not just a sunsetting. It was a redacting by proxy. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. Right? And there are people that were very close to him that stabbed him in the back. There are people that were his students that stabbed him in the back. And maybe some of them, some of them, maybe, became bread tubers. I don't know that for sure. But there, there probably was a few of them that were hanging around Goldsmith at the time. I know there's one of them, but that uh, tries to, you know, there's a few of them, actually. There's a few of his students that try to gatekeep his legacy, even though they were the ones. They were the ones that really viciously canceled him and went after him after he published The Vampire Castle. And, and so, um, I'm sorry, I get pissed off because he is one of the genuine leftist thinkers that I actually respect and admire. And, and a lot of his work is actually the basis of a lot of, not a lot, not as much as like John David Ebert or um, Thurston Botts-Borenstein or Byung-Chul Han, but the, a significant portion of my book is reliant upon uh, incited incites mark fisher in his work so i don't know i get steamed about this how these like bread tubers the very same and if they didn't actually cancel him they were the same type of people that would go after him if they were there and yet they're making videos about like this and that and it's like uh anyways yeah i'm not talking listen i'm not talking about Titus Vincor. i'm not talking about plastic pills i'm talking about other people who are more polemical than them but there are like left video essayists that do kind of do some justice to Mark Fisher's work. That do a lot of justice to Mark Fisher's work. And there's people that just focus on breaking down complex philosophy. Like, you know, Plastic Pills and... The, I think, what is that guy's... Other guy's name? Theory something. And of course, you know, Johnny Beard, of course. And Titus Fincourt. Like, there's people that do... And even, like, uh, he goes by a different name now. But, like, Cuck Philosophy is a mixed bag. Like, he has very terrible opinions. But he has also a lot of good videos. But anyways, anyways, I'm just, I'm getting, I'm getting personal here. I, I, I'm getting steamed. It's a digression. I should stop this. But I, I truly think that Mark Fisher was pushed into it by very hideous schools. And I, I feel that, um, that man, you know, he was broken down by a, a lot of things. And I, you know, and I, I feel I, you know, his, his untimely passing was a tragedy, really. And anyways, so he, so this is what and Julius says his PSG dissertation, Flatland Constructs, which is also a very good read, is more relevant. He compares monks the scream seen as emblematic of the modernist anxiety of solitude and alienation, with the postmodern terror of cybernetics penetrating and meshing everything into a continuous inescapable flatland. And of course, this comes from Frederick Jameson, what Jameson calls the waning of affect. And uh, so here he says, and this is the screen cap of the passage for Baudrillard, then the cultural reconfigurations that Jameson identifies did not mark the end of the age of anxiety. As Jameson thinks, rather, they usher in another new era of anxiety. So Jameson says that the era of anxiety comes from the age of modernism. 
modernism implies a very stark in, in art, literature, culture, even in psychiatry, in, in uh, psychoanalysis, and in even in terms of government policy, in terms of the way we experience the, the interwar period and so forth. You know, the modernism, the 19th and 20th century, ushers in the sort of modernist divide, which is a very deep inner self that is walled off from the outside. Where it's like, you know, that the graph of literature that you studied in school, like modernisms, like man versus nature, man versus self, man versus this, and postmodernism is like, you know, there's no more verses, there's just is, right? So modernism is a very stark divide. And the anxiety is the anxiety of the other. I explain this in my book as well in one passage. Um, so then he says, so, so Mark Fisher saying that the era of anxiety, the fin de siècle, the, the great sickness of the century, as the French called it, has not left us. It transformed. There, but there isn't that postmodern divide. Sorry, modern divide. There isn't that modern divide between the self and the other, or the outside self versus world and so forth. Because there's the waning of affect. There is no inside or outside. It's one thing now. Right? And, and the digital world reveals this. The characters of this new age of anxiety has already been delineated by McLuhan, whereas modernist anxiety is founded on the, inescap the inescapability of individual freedom, or freedoms, in themes are individual solitude, social fragmentation, and alienation. End quote. That was from McLuhan. By contrast, quote, or sorry, it's from Jameson. Sorry, yeah, Baudrillard, Baudrillard. Uh, by contrast, McLuhan's anxiety anticipation of Baudrillard's is exactly contrary, quote, it has its origins in a social disalienation and the denial or um, penetrant on by m the media and so by everyone else, of any margins of solitude or alienation. Modernist anxiety involves the withdrawal to an imaginary identity resistant to immersion in the form of modernization. And even, you know, even Adorno and, and Marcuse and the Frankfurt School talked about this, right? Like, and I wrote, I wrote papers about this, like I compared it to the postmodernists, where it's like, you know, they're saying the super special secret place that you have inside of your citadel that's walled off from the outside. That's not true anymore. There's no insider outside. There's no super special secret wholesome chungus place of authenticity and self that you can cling to. Modernist anxiety invokes the withdrawal to an imaginary identity resistant to immersion in the forms of modernization. McLuhan's postmodern anxiety has given up the resistant identity and has no anchorage in the individual thought or feeling. Plugged into the new network, traversed by it, Baudrillard's terminal man knows that retreat into private space is no longer an option. And this awareness generates a new sense of terror. For Baudrillard, quote, the state of terror propels or uh, proper to the schizophrenic too great a proximity of everything, the unclean promiscuity of everything, which touches, invests, and penetrates without resistance, with no halo of private projection, to protect him anywhere. And what do you find in Geiger? You find aliens having relations with each other all the time, everywhere. Every hole is penetrated. Every avenue of the brain is exploded. Alien creatures dot a cybernetical, mechanical landscape. It's the ultimate, you know, it's alien transhumanism. There's no separation between anything. 
in these tapestries and landscapes of terror and alien horror that is H.R. Geiger. Right, and why is he so popular? It's literally the invasion of the outside coming in. And so this is the thing, the point. The, the digital world is much like this. And you have to have a lapse of memory. You have to never, you know, unless you're very special, such as myself. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. You have to never really think deeply upon anything. You just have to go and enter into the flow endlessly. You're always flowing. One, and you have the sense of amnesia. You can't remember the meme that you came across, the forced event that happened the week previous anymore. That's for a reason. Because your inner life has been exploded. It's, it's, it's involuted. It collapses inward and it goes outside. And so let's finish this quote. Both dread and ecstasy arise from a loosing or a loss of the sense of self as a delineable entity, delineable, delimitable entity. There's no delineation, in other words. A white or blackout of identity that can just as easily be experienced as terror or euphoria. Like me, I love when I flow into the internet. And you, it's like this, you know, I experience this loss of self in some ways. I know I shouldn't admit that in public, but you know. Um, you have a particularly good posting day, you know. Dread is a kind of jurassance. In negative, a slow substance, subsistence into uncontrol and panic, right? So the so jurassance is the losing of the self in pleasure and maximum ecstasy. And so when you flow into the digital age, you flow into this endless onslaught, this deluge of information. It is a form of jurassance. You lose yourself within the supreme ecstasies of having no self whatsoever. You know, the internet age is really a weird form of samsara in that regard. Follow, following Leotard through his retouring of Kantian aesthetics, Jameson calls this simultaneous apprehension of ecstasy and dread, the postmodern sublime, the waning of affect. And, and that, that, that's really the, the sort of the postmodern sublime or the postmodern divide, as William Gibson says. In that... There is like this feeling of loss, but this feeling of Christmas morning as William gets it. Well, I, I, by the time I release this um, on Thursday, the Digital Archipelago, um, I believe episode 71, we cover William Gibson's documentary called No Maps of These Territories, where he talks about it. So check that out as well as well as listening to this. So that is the postmodern divide of Mark Fisher. And... Uh, you know, it's funny because apparent, like at the time of recording, at the time of recording is season two of Fish Tank, and that's an example. And listen, I know, I know, I am that soy jack meme saying I'm going to talk about Fish Tank randomly. But you know, it, there there is a truth to it in that there is no inside or outside. We're given this like this. We're creating the identity of these people who probably struggle with issues of identity themselves vicariously through the screen through the memes through what we talk about them behind their backs which is like they can't access this information only to then leave the fish tank and then realize what we are saying and the memes we created about them and and it's really fascinating because that is the postmodern divide the sort of like anxiety terror and ecstasy 
I know it's so stupid because it's a meme show, Fish Tank, but when you bring a sense of actual reality to reality television, that's what happens. You get the real simulating the real. In an environment where you can experience everyone's mental tics, everyone's anxieties and fears and, and, and the, the, the war of personalities and those awkward moments and living with other people that you're total strangers and having to cope with that and, and having to experience this very lurid voyeurism on the part of the audience that wants to make you crack. You know, it's like there's something to it that really is. Sam Hyde and Jet Neptune really did, you know, create the perfect postmodern show. When you really think about it. Wow, that's a quote. That's a quote. But I hope Sam Hyde or Jet Neptune comes on uh, content-minded. But anyways, let's get to, again, this is a further extension of life in the internet age. Um, the, the paywalled version, we'll talk about some, uh, in this episode, we'll talk about some political matters and some other content ideas and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I may go into a little bit about other current events. I may or may not review a film or an article or something. So it's, you know, that's going to be the keynote content. So please go to patreon.com slash Productions. Go to substack slash Geo's Content Corner. You know, you get the full episode. And you help support me as I write my book and everything. You know, I really appreciate it. And it's the Christmas season. So... There's this, uh, oh, I, I'm going to get pissed off, so prepare for a rant. There's this absolutely ridiculous meme that it just seemed too, it seemed too forced. Like, every single tweet about it was getting the range of 44,000 to 50,000 to 200,000 likes. And the original video got, like, I don't know, however, however many millions of views. And there was this very conscious effort. And, and I, you know, I, I said that basically, like, this was a borderline a psyop. I, was, I think it was replying to Measured Head. And some terrible, impossible woman with a cartoon avatar uh, said that, you know, leave it to, you know, Vatican flag, Abby, to have a schizo take. Like, first of all, you'll never be a woman. Anyways, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Um, there, there's this meme going around where, and, and listen, I'm, I'm not going to say the words for YouTube, but you know, that Norm Macdonald gif or, or, uh, that, that poster, or I think there's also a gif version from his show where he said, um, this may see, <laughs> this may strike the viewers as harsh, but everyone in this deserves to, you know what, sunset, right? Uh, and so yes, the, the original video Everyone involved is just an obnoxious and enervating person. So there's this guy going around doing like this TikTok bait, like fake debate thing, like doing these like stupid hypotheticals. So, you know, like the hypothetical thing, it's already, um, it's already been overplayed, right? It's, it's getting to the point of coal, you know, the whole, like the breakfast hypothetical. And it's this guy, he's got like this I, what was it, a Babylon a Babylon B shirt where it's like my pronouns are praise him or something. Um, it's like, you know, he's some, some like, you know, uh, pock-faced, like pimply-faced kid, scrawny dude. And he asks this guy who's got a ponytail and a leather shirt and, and like this like second gen Bluetooth on his ear and he's got a pot belly. He looks, he basically looks like a Reddit 
like r slash atheist but even an older nerd that basically inhabited the internet from its earliest ages i'm talking like old school usenet basement dweller like that archetype you know guys that use lennox you know what i mean like <laughs> like this is like the the fedora tipper nerd right like this is the archetype and he there's this hypothetical it's like you can either have economic stability and prosperity or trans rights, whatever, LGBT, CIA rights. And he's like, I reject your, I reject your hypothetical. I, re I reject the proposition. And he's just doing this very annoying, like Reddit, new atheist. Like I, you know, it's, it basically reminded me. Um, and I believe also his daughter has a, uh, you know, as an impossible woman or impossible, sorry, impossible man. Um, son quote-unquote it reminds me of that adam savage quote did you know that about adam savage that he, that is he has an impossible kid uh adam savage when he did the stupid um i reject your reality and substitute it with my own and so it's like and and like reddit and zoomer mb kids who are who weren't alive during those days they're like praising and there there's this like this air of forceness to it like every every tweet about it, and this like one guy that I screen capped, and I did this whole thread on saying that um, it's some like stupid irony leftist. It's like some chapo, some chapo cell irony cell leftist, right? Saying like we need to bring them back so they could cut through all these like you know these uh these uh you know fun dogma ridden content bros who like actually have the sincerity of a belief, right? We need to bring back those, these exact same archetype of those that they bullied during Gamergate near to extinction. Okay, now let's lay out the history for a moment here. Okay, so anyways, I'll lay out the history, but first and foremost, I, I did a thread on it and, and it's so crazy. Every time you mention this dude, because someone made this, you know, the gamer head yes, like instead of the the Aryan racist gamer had Nordic gamer. Let's have this guy, this like, you know, moderator for like, he looks like A.L. Lewis, right? You know, the one that, um, did the, uh, I'm enlightened by my own intelligence quote. And they're like all freaking out. And they're like, it's, it's very funny when you, cause you know, the way that the algorithm works, right? And this is what Elon revealed when he made it open source. There's networking. There's, there's algorithmic slotting going on. Meaning that if you interact with a conglomeration or a node around different accounts, then the algorithm basically shuts you off into a walled garden. And it takes effort to go to the other side to break into different parts of Twitter. And that's all social media sites. And the reason they do this is varied. It's because it's also a preferential thing. Like they, the algorithm wants more engagement. And so it slots you off into the, you know into the accounts and into the tweets or into the content, into the posts that you're more likely to see and read and spend time engaging with. But also it's a safety measure. Because if you have people, if you have like total algorithmic anarchy, and this is where I disagree with some people that want this, it will never work. Because it would just be a war zone all the time. You need a little bit of a war zone, but you need the, you need the back lines. If the back trenches are getting invaded, like, say this is World War I. There's a constant ongoing battle in the front lines, in the trench. But if those auxiliary trenches 
are always getting raided and always getting shelled, then you can't move forward, and it's impossible, and there's no point to it. And so this is why you need algorithmic networking. But I noticed that when you post about this meme, either it's getting botted, or it's getting boosted on Reddit, which is probably more likely when it comes to the big viral posts, all of a sudden accounts that you've never seen, none of your followers have any interaction, that, that follow nobody that you follow, all of a sudden they break algorithmic containment. And you have these MB kids with Pikru Avies and with pronouns in the bio, all of a sudden, like they're 100 followers, they come and they, they harass you. And I have to like block them when I did my thread. I even locked for a little bit, which has been a while since I locked uh, under the Elon reign. And it's, you know, it's, it's incredible. And, and this meme, like multiple people were saying this, even like Nightmare Vision reposted this. Like, it's like this funny, it, you, you know when you feel that there's a forced meme? I know I'm being like schizo or whatever, but this is clearly an operation. This is being boosted. I sound like Alex Jones right now. This is clearly an operation. This is some intelligence operation being boosted on Reddit. Um, you know, it's being, it is being boosted on Reddit. And this, it just, it, it was so fake. It was so retrograde. It hit the button of nostalgia, both real nostalgia from irony leftists who grew up with new atheism and John Stewart. You know, you know the type, right? The insufferable type. And the fake nostalgia of Zoomer MB kids that want to appropriate something that their forefathers bullied off of the internet or off of the surface web. And they have only this pop media image of the Reddit nerd. There's this one I talk, I screen cap where he's like, I have a friend like this. He could go from talking about capturing, from uh, hunting golden Pokemon to talking about the future of the Palestinians. And it's like this very fake Reddit inflection, this very insufferable leftist where everything is political, everything's like captured. There's like no irony. And, and, and basically there is this, again, this irony leftist that I was quoting. Here's, let me, you know what? Let me just, let me just read it for you. To give you a good picture, this is how pissed off I am at this nonsense. So here he, they say, um, where here it is, here it is. And this is by some idiot called, I'm not going to say the ad, but it's some bird purse. I don't know, it's not, not important. They don't deserve your views. Um, responding to the original Giga Chad yes, the, the yes of this Reddit nerd, this art atheist moderator. These guys played such a crucial role in the ecosystem. It was wrong of society to push them to the margins. You pushed them to the margins during Gamergate. I'll tell you the history of that, by the way. I'll tell you how that happened. All right, I was there. Okay, I was there. I was younger, but I was there. It was wrong of society to push them to the margins. They need to be selectively reintroduced. So, like, basically, the left also has this version of thinking of people as phenotypes in the internet age that the right wing does, it's only kind of different, you know? They need to be selectively reintroduced back into the key areas of Twitter to combat this new subspecies of dogmatic content bros. There are only hope. It's like, again, this is the marvelification of discourse. This is when the, the, the this is like the, uh, you know, Star Wars, this is when the, uh, you know, this is when Anakin Skywalker comes in and, like, this is when all of the Marvel superheroes get together to fight Thanos. You know, th this is, like, this is the way they think. 
And then I screen capped some impossible people, if you know what I mean. The special forces of combating reactionary thinking, but you accuse them of reactionary thinking. And in this thread, here's, and then another person said, and it's another dog, Abby, as well. No, uh, no, honestly, we need to just start electing these guys to Congress. Imagine him talking to McConnell like that. They'd filibuster us ready to universal health care and higher minimum wage. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. You know why? Because back in the day, those guys were like total anarcho-libertarians. They were like, you know, they're reading Hoppe and Ayn Rand while they were talking about, uh, they had suspicious knowledge of all the uh, age of consent laws in uh, every state. And this is another impossible with a, um, some kind of, uh, what is that, Jigglypuff? No, it's some other, some other Pokemon mutation. We need our brave, our atheism soldiers with logic and reason. I love when I say logic or like logic, like law as in logic, because in a way it denotes the sort of like, um, the, it's a double entendre because it denotes like the legalistic thinking of them. Like that rationality is this iron law that can never be crossed. It's like logic, right? Get it? But he is, he spells it the correct. Oh, sorry. She spells it the correct. She, um, and reason folded a thousand times into Reddit threads who physically moved Bibles into fiction sections of the Barnes and Noble so that our valuable, our vulnerable Q ears don't have to debate their own existence in SJW owned YouTube videos. Those were the same people or a fraction, a faction of them that were consuming SJW owned videos. Okay. Because you don't know the history because you know nothing. Because you are an MB kid Zoomer that just arrived, like post twenty sixteen, and and you you live in an inner kitty squat, and you beg for money from other hideous mutants. Uh, sorry, I'm going too far. I'm going too far. But you know, these people know nothing. Okay, like you know that one tweet that went viral, that like I, I it's a shame that I'm subjected to the opinions of fifteen year olds in this website every single day. That's the truth. Okay, that's the truth. Like, okay, here's the history of this. And and people like Nightmare Vision are very good at breaking this down as well because they're, they're also old heads and they know the history of it, as I do. Or at least I try to. And I may be getting facts wrong here and there, but or I, I rather I may be accentuating certain points, but, you know, c'est la vie. So you see, New Atheism crafted a lion's share of what I like to call the sort of meta-text or meta-formula of the culture war that we see today. The meta-text as a script of culture war formation on both sides, mind you, on both sides. I'll, I'll tell you how. So in the beginning, the new atheists are like, listen, the atheists are like the most discriminated people in Christian America, bumpkin America and Jesus land. We're the most discriminated people and we need representation and they basically, any talking point that you see the LGBT CIA use nowadays, they've already used it. But imagine instead of like, you know, impossible women, it's, it's atheists, right? That they are repressed and that speech is, the, the speech encoded into American law is oppressive against non-believers and so on and so forth. And that there's a form of... Uh, very strange, uh, you know, subtextual violence going on or systemic discrimination against atheists. They've all done this, right? 
They put their, but see, they put their brain power to use, their, their neurodivergency to good use. On both sides, by the way. Although in the right wing, I would argue that a lot of them, hmm, they're, a lot of them are basically just infiltrators like James Lindsay, but that's you know, noted, noted LGBT plus activist James Lindsay. So what happened during Gamergate was a huge schism, schism, tism, schism between the two. Schism, tism, schism, schism, schism. <laughs> I know that's going to be so annoying for some people. I'm very sorry. There was a huge schism between the two during Gamergate. There were those who were like mildly, like, you know, I am mildly disappointed or I am mildly um, critical of the SJWs, quote unquote, they were the ones who pretty much stayed with the skepticism crap. People like um, Thunderfoot, or I think Th Thunderfoot, he became like a total libtard now. But uh, yeah, people like uh, Thunderfoot, for a time, ugh, I hate mentioning him, TJ Kirk, but now he's like a total bread tuber, so he's a bad example. Um, Sargon... Jim even. Daddy Jim. Remember, he was an atheist YouTuber. Right? Uh, and then there's also, like, the atheist YouTubers that skewed left that basically they're in a time capsule since, like, 2007. People like Coughlin666 and Aaron Raw and uh, Fake Sagan and, like, Amendum still does his thing. I think he still gets, like, a thousand or something viewers a video. Um... You know, uh, if you want my good hot takes on Amendum, listen to that, that the the one episode of um, it was before I was the co-host, the one episode of Def of uh, not Default Wisdom, the one episode of the Computer Room, and you can find the playlist, the link to uh, the Computer Room podcast in the description here. It was the episode about Adam uh, Lanza that me and Default, we, we did extensive research on and we covered. And I talk about the New Atheists. And, uh, you know, and, and I've, of course, I think Amendum, I shouldn't say, but uh, I had a few hot takes in there about Amendum that maybe, you know, it sounded accusatory, which they were. But anyways, moving on. So you have, like, the anti-SW YouTubers, a lot of them started off as New Atheists. Uh, a lot of them... Even, like, Dawkins, like, was mildly critical of the left for a little bit. Um, then you had, like, others who were more, like, really intensely focused on counter-Islam. Or, like, counter-Jihad, like, Pat Condell. You know, guys like that. Uh, then the IDW. Like, James Lindsay and uh, the, er the Weinsteins, or uh, rather, Eric Weinstein. And, uh... Sam Harris, although Sam Harris is just a lib now. He he had this like very seething indictment of uh, of, of um, Elon Musk recently that was quite funny because you know when people try to hide their rage and their seethe and their cope and their 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 butt their you know you know when they try to hide when they're butt hurt, it's like that. He's like, I think it was because he brought back Alex Jones. It's like you know this is like. This is like several 9-11s for the, the skeptic community because then people are going to get disinformation from Alex Jones. And, you know, as if Alex Jones isn't like an icon, minstrel, 
uh, deep archetype of American media and, and the American psyche. Anyways, so Sam Harris was one of them on the bigger end. And then you had the SJWs themselves were also inspired by new atheism, specifically atheism plus the sort of roster of women, the binders full of women that that hideous uh, creature, PZ Myers, with his little fiefdom there on Freethought Blogs, fostered people like Rebecca Watson. But of course, a lot of these big Transformer accounts, if you know what I mean on Twitter, these big uh, impossible women influencers, they were all millennials that were part of the new atheists that then were seduced by Atheism Plus and they, uh, they transformed, if you know what I mean. A lot of them were on something awful. They were goons on something awful. Goons are, were mod the term for moderators on something awful. And they, they you know, they, they uh, listened to all those debates between, I don't know, like Hitchens and Ken Hoven or whoever. And uh, they, they ended up, uh, you know, becoming uh, beyond their impossibles. A lot of those millennials that you see, like even the ones uh, that were applying to this meme, they were there. They know it. So that archetype of the like our like like of the nerd atheist pedantic midwit a lot of them are just midwits they they have high technical knowledge in a few fields but when it comes to anything else you know the, the archetype was that they were like libertarians that hated feminism but they also had this weird thing about the uh the impossibles you know uh i wonder why i wonder why um yeah, that's what they were coded as. And they were banished. They were driven out by the left. But now that the left wants to bring back that archetype, which in some ways was always present within the internet from its earliest days, to bring back that archetype, to make it this like Reddit, wholesome chungus, like left radical liberal version of it. Like this is a total affront. This is such a forced meme. It's incredible. And, and when you point it out, they come at you because you revealed their hand, right? So that species of internet dweller became extinct for a variety of different reasons. There was a variety of ecological pressures by the time you get to the 2010s that, that attenuated their numbers through transforming, through being canceled, through, um, you know, a lot of them just, like, basically grew up and, like, logged off. And, and, and so that archetype is a rare breed. And, and this whole thing about, like, we need to rewild them. What is it to say that they're sort of, like, weirdo, like, uh, less wrong-style rationality, which is reliant upon utilitarianism and just basically questioning everything endlessly and not having any, like core convictions or beliefs what's to say that they're not going to turn that on you that they're not going to turn that on your pretensions that they're not going to be like these heckin wholesome skeptics that you know oh to be a skeptic this is like john stewart you know not john stewart this is stephen colbert when he said that uh oh reality has a liberal bias because of course you know or like science has a liberal bias so meaning that like you know, oh, it just so happens we trust the science on everything. And the science just so happens to, to, uh, to, to like basically support 
all of our like you know a radical liberal priors I remember back in the day in the 2000s, they had this thing about like how conservatives are dumber because they have a, a greater flight or threat res flight response and a greater disgust response. And that basically liberals are the ones who evolutionarily uh, predicated worth on communicating with the outgroup. And therefore that breeds intel that's more intelligent and more uh, wholesome egalitarian. Like like they, they view intellectualism as a sort of uh, like all Redditors do. They view it as a form of intellectual currency. There's this great post on the Redditor by uh, a good mutual of mine. What, like, really one of the top flight posters. One of the blue chip posters. Scorched Earth Policy. Who I believe was a founder of the Milady Maker uh, thing. But he had this post post about the Reddit and how uh, the Redditors now they view intelligence as a form of intellectual currency. And so, um, you know, I did this thread responding to it. And just people are, like, flipping out. And uh, it, it really is a shame because... It's such a transparent thing. You know what I mean? It's such a transparent thing that, you know, when you point it out, they get very offended at that. They get very, very offended. And, and, and the fact that they have to sort of politicize that archetype after they were the ones that canceled them after Gamergate, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. And, and you shouldn't fall for it. You know what I mean? Like, this is just, um, this is incredibly intellectually lazy. And those people, let's face it, they deserved to go to the doldrums of the deep web. You know why? Because they were insufferable. They were insufferable. And, and they, and, and there was a variety of reasons as to why they left. This archetype of the early internet dweller, old head nerd. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, but I'm just, that's all I wanted to say. And hopefully this, this meme dies like all forced memes do and you shouldn't fall for it. And it's just a, yeah. But a greater point I had is that, you know, without being too conspiratorial about it, we do know that intelligence agencies monitor social media. The fantastical claim, or what people think is a fantastical claim that is harder to sell people on is that actually intelligence agencies, governments, and especially corporations have an unseen hand and sometimes a very visible hand into manipulating information on the internet. Reddit seems to be the ground zero for this. Reddit seems to be a very good avenue of an audience that is in some ways a bit too Skinner boxed, who's very medium through the system of karma, through the algorithm promoting an intense form of left liberal groupthink, is very suitable to, you know, inflicting various forced meme plexes on people and to spreading and corralling information. And it's very useful. Because Twitter is a bit too chaotic, especially under Musk. They, they kind of don't have control over it. There's one thing that Musk did good. And I know that Musk isn't her guy. And there's a lot of quite scary things that he believes in, in terms of the future and all that. That, you know, me and Matthew the Stout, we talk about this all the time. And he's like very skeptical of Musk. He goes, how do you think that this guy's your friend? But the fact that they're like freaking out over him 
if it's one good thing he did, it was to wrestle control away from them. But the inherent algorithm and UI design, user interface design of Twitter is a bit more difficult to control information with. Whereas Reddit's a perfect medium to control information with because of its UI and because of the very culture that the Redditors cultivate. It's very like uh, the way that information gets spread and the way that certain ideological narratives get enforced is very one-dimensional. Twitter, it's a bit more complicated and tricky because you need agents on the ground. You need people, or rather true believers, that may or may not be, you know, being guided by certain uh, people that you don't know. And, and, and it has to be like this decentralized thing, whereas in Reddit, it's very much centralized. You know, they can have uh, the pick of the litter in terms of ideological narratives that the regime finds favorable. And if you don't believe me, there's been this blog post that a follower of mine, when I did that thread on the uh, the Reddit, um, you know, the, the Redditors trying to bring back this uh, this archetype of the Internet's past. There's this uh, article that this guy, he had to find in the Wayback Machine. Reddit used to have blogs where they would... Um, Reddit would have blogs where they would actually tell you the traffic and um, and and uh, the the places that information was coming from and user interactability and so forth. And they got rid of it for obvious reasons. And this is from blog.reddit. What's new on Reddit? From 2015, Wednesday, May 8th, 2013. Sorry, not 2015, 2013. Get ready for Global Reddit Meetup Day, plus some stats about how top Reddit cities and languages. Global Reddit Meetup Day. So they would have meetups where like Redditors... Can you imagine if you were like an old head going to a Reddit Meetup Day? Imagine the smell. Anyways. The fourth annual Global Reddit Meetup Day would take place on Saturday, June 15th, 2013. Check on the list of local subreddits to find your local community. And these are the top cities. To encourage your local pride, we take a look at the geographic areas. And the top uh, speaking cities were Montreal and Stockholm. And apparently a lot of Scandies, they love Reddit. Well, that tells you everything, doesn't it? Um, I'm not bashing Scandinavians. I'm just saying, like, they have a tendency for uh, to, to, you know, live out on the internet. Top cities by total visiting. One, New York. Two, Toronto. Oh, number two is Toronto. Oh, my God. That does make sense. Three, London, four, Chicago, five, Los Angeles, six, Sydney, San Francisco, Seattle, Melbourne, Austin. So yeah, all of them like lib epicenters. Most addicted cities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Oklahoma City. Most addicted cities, over 100,000 visitors total. It lists South St. Paul, Minnesota, which has a military base, if I recall. Oak Brook, Illinois, which I believe is near a military base. And in an Eaglin, Eaglin Air Force Base, Florida is the top one. And of course, the top 10 cities, Page Views for Capita, Austin, Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, Vancouver, City, Melbourne, San Diego, Brisbane, Portland. Local subreddits top. Number one, R slash NYC. 
two r slash toronto and three slash r slash seattle wow that explains a lot so they're essentially admitting that a huge chunk of reddit traffic comes from a military base or comes from areas that are adjacent to military bases and there are subreddits are like ask you know like ask whatever of people that are trying to find resources i think a few years ago one of them asking that you know reddit released data that a lot of traffic was coming from adjacent areas with military bases so make of that information what you will we clearly know that there is some form of manipulation going on and and it's astonishing when you look at these forced memes that there maybe there's something going on here remember like again i mentioned the obama czar like cass sunstein remember when he said like uh we're going to deploy like fake conspiracy theories to like uh you know to to thwart the real ones he like actually admitted this he actually said this um and and there's this other thing where it was about uh well you know we're getting long in the tooth here but there was uh this other thing that correlates with it it comes from a blog about how in uh 20 uh, let me let me look it up for you this comes from my good friend salad bar fan and he links to this blog and there's this uh i I, i'm trying to see if it'll be algorithm friendly but there are these there's this blog post from creditbubblestocks.com and he's trying to find it's from obscure blog and let me read it to you so at salad bar fan his name is uh reopen the sizzlers (laughs) i love that name reopen the sizzlers so this is from this blog he links to. And this, of course, is about the erection in uh, 2020. You joke, I think, but how aware are people that we narrowly skirted a third world style coup here in the U.S. just two weeks ago? You may recall that in the first week of June, the Antifasaro's media industrial complex was called for a mil- million protests, quote unquote, a- a.k.a. riots, to converge in Washington, D.C., where the president was bunked at the White House. This was, of course, President Donald Trump at the time. In the run-up to the June 6th weekend, the Dem D.C. mayor stood down law enforcement and National Guard and the Joint Chief of Staff started... And, of course, he has exclamation marks. The Joint Chief of Staff started issuing strange public memorandums implying that they were on the side of the rioters rather than the president. No reference, and of course, if you remember, Millie had these extreme statements uh, during these riots. The side of the rioters are the present. No reference to chain of command slash cannot quote cannot abide defensiveness and hate. Cannot abide by divisiveness and hate. Sorry, not defensiveness, divisiveness, etc. This is the classic deep state color revolution checkmark. The important mob storms the the imported mob storms the presidential palace while converging insiders preemptively scurry or any uh scurp, um sorry scupper any official reaction whether the president flees or is sacked he is discredited and a new figure takes the helm because of the unprecedented conditions of these turbulent times ag Barr, head of the department of justice and one of the smarter and more perceptive guys in the white house of course this didn't happen to oppose trump but it was a, a strange series of events that uh happened where you know they they were really openly talking about this 
So A.G. Barr was sufficiently alarmed by the situation that he re replaced the federal troops around the White House, loyal to the JCS, the Joint Chief of Staff, with Department of Justice troops whose loyalty he could be more assured of. This is crazy, right? This is like when in Moscow in 1994, where they're like, you know, Gorbachev's people are racing to fight uh, Zaranovsky's people. It's like, you know, they're trying to fight. They're trying to go to the Kremlin who can get there first to burn the documents, you know. Um, you know that moment in foreign wire service dispatches or Tom Clancy novels where different military cadres loyal to different government factions maneuver around the capital to determine who will be in power next week? That happened here two weeks ago, and almost no one noticed. Because, of course, they can claim that it never happened. And, you know, it totally went off, you know, without any interference. But except for the MAGA's people that were throwing in jail because they did the, in, uh, the, uh, the surrection, you know. That didn't work this time. Too few Antifa. Doesn't mean that the strategy is off the table. Notably, the deficiency in June 6 wasn't too few converged insiders dc is awash with them bar notwithstanding but too few outside mobbers they'll be sure to rectify that next time just have to whip up a little more public frenzy and fund antifa cells a little more exactly 100 but it's to control the information but you see musk robbed them of a huge information node right because mo all like the pro-trump people they're they're you know they're gearing up on twitter on Twitter, sorry, X. I, I have to use the, the preferred name pronouns, X. But just today, while I'm recording, two things of significance happened. Number one, the, the Maple Leafs lost to the Rangers. Sorry, that's that's not that significant, but you know. Um, and not, well, actually, I'm making a joke. The real significant ha thing happened is that there was a Supreme Court in Colorado that essentially banned Trump from the primary. Unprecedentedly. I mean, maybe there was some kind of legal precedent before, who cares? Meaning that only DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy and Nimrata Haley can run. And of course, Vivek, he's got to be a good little boy, and he's like, you know, I'm going to pull my ballot out of Colorado because this is an injustice. And he's correct. It is an injustice. And, you know, a lot of people like to bomb on Wyatt, right? They like to say that Wyatt's just a contrarian troll and he got bought into the DeSantis thing. And Wyatt, he recently mutualed me. So I have to... So I'm, I'm, I'm more favorable to Wyatt's opinion, of course, being a mutual. I know, that's, you know, to, to win my heart, you must mutual, you must follow me on, on Twitter to win over my heart, right? <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Anyways, but Wyatt, you know, he was gloating over this, but he has a point, though. He was going over this, like, you know, Joker avatar. But he does have a point. He has a big point, actually. And I know he, he had a great thread on how DeSantis's campaign fell, too. But his point was actually pretty apt. He said that all these MAGA people, they're scurrying and denouncing and they're frantic and they're saying how unconstitutional. And the, and the Trump team will challenge this, probably at a higher Supreme Court. Which they probably, who knows what will happen. Or, or maybe if Trump wins with such a sufficient margin, then it won't really matter if he loses Colorado in the primaries. But Wyatt has a good point. He says that they're going to do this everywhere. They're going to do this all in the lib the libtard states are going to do this. They're going to do this in the northern states. And they're going to do this probably in purple states. They'll maybe do this in Texas. Who knows? Because people like, like, like Abbott... And, and John Cornyn before him, 
recently had some like cringe statement about how migrants are more American than Americans, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they really, really destroyed the Texas GOP. And I'll get to Canadian news as well a little bit. But, you know, just to, to make it fair. Um, but the point being is that to control perception and information is key because then you can legitimize these unprecedented historical moves. They can literally just rob it from him by saying that by some weird legal trickery with a stroke of a pen, these state constitutional bodies, these state Supreme Courts, maybe not all of them, the red states certainly won't, but enough of them to maybe seriously put Trump's not renomination in terms of the primaries for the Republican Party in serious jeopardy. Because he's got such a stellar lead over everybody that if they can just draft with a stroke of a pen, because DeSantis is gone. DeSantis is over. Who are they going to put in? Nimrata Haley. They don't want Vivek. Because Vivek is too much of a toady for Trump. And frankly, the Silicon Valley, the new money powers, they frankly scare the establishment in, in some weird way. Not to say I fully trust the, you know, Theo Horowitz and Dryasen network. But, you know, the, the new Silicon Valley, like, techno-libertarian, transhumanist types to which Musk is allied with, to which Musk, you know, implicitly supports Vivek and, and like, you know, boosts him at every turn on Twitter. Sorry, X, X. You know, that kind of scares the GOP. Because these old curmudgeons, these old greaseballs, they don't really know. It's like, it's like you know, at Lion Casino... Try to tell these hard-headed old greaseballs about leakage. When it's like, when you got a guy that steals for you, he's going to steal, even if he's loyal, he's going to steal a little bit for himself. You can't, you can't prevent that. You know what I mean? So they're kind of, they don't want Vivek. They don't want Vivek because he's, on the national stage, he's just too unappealing to a lot of people. And they're starting to work the gears that he is, a weird Indian white supremacist for some weird reason, because he manages to acknowledge reality about demographic change. So Vivek is not an option. They want Nikki Haley. They want the other Indian. You know what I mean? They want the other one because Nikki Haley is basically a Republican party plant. That's like, that's very clear. DeSantis can't be controlled either. DeSantis is kind of, he's, he kind of screwed himself and he's not appealing and so, you know, who knows? But the point being is that this is how they do things nowadays. If you can control the flow of information, you can legitimize historically unprecedented things because Trump unleashed that Pandora's box of hyperreality upon American politics, which always was hyperreal. It always was kind of a simulation. But now it's like full throttle. And uh, it's it's uh, tragic. And, and, you know, in Canada, they're doing this as well. In Canada, they're proposing all these stupid things. But I do notice that tr that uh, Trudeau, he's not doing too well. I mean, the libs, they try to freak out things. Like, there, there's this guy, there's a fellow fellow Paisan in, in, uh, from Woodbridge in the Ford administration here in Ontario, where he is uh, proposing that they get rid of CRT in schools and they have a quote-unquote anti-communist education program. Which, I mean, in Canada, you could probably work it because there's a lot of Ukrainian refugees and uh, 
a lot of people of the diaspora who have been here since the Soviet Union, and you could probably factor some kind of like ethnic, uh, you know, heritage thing where they fought the uh, so the evil Russians and their wholesome Chungus Ukrainians. You could probably do that, but the libs are freaking out because they consider that a control over the major node of information, which is the future psyches of children. It would be such a huge blow to them. Um, you know what I mean? So this is why they're freaking out. But there's this other thing where the National Post is talking about Pierre Palavra, saying the soft populism of Pierre, of Pierre Palive, or Palavra, how Pierre Palavra's soft populism is riding global waves of voter frustration. This comes from two, Stuart Thomas in the National Post. Which is probably one of, like, even though they're like Normicons and they're like Israel Firsters, they're still probably, like, you know, in terms of Normiconism, they're probably one of the better papers in, you know, in Canada. They're the only really, you know, anyways. Many flavors of populism as their uh, countries in Holland. Longtime anti immigrant campaigner Jert Wilders won the most seats, but of course you have to bend the knee to, uh, well, anyways, anyways, not to go too much into that. Argentine president-elect uh, Javier Malay, who I've, you know, come out against. I kind of don't trust him. Giorgio Maloney, who, of course, is not a real populist, uh, you know, was kind of a failure. And I I, I, I fear that uh, Pierre Palavra will repeat the pattern of fake populism. As for Malay, who knows? I mean, he's crazy enough. He might just... Uh, he might just shake things up. Who knows? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence. But I'm kind of leaning against because there's certain things of his that kind of scare me. But anyways, in Canada, the Liberals have been working to draw a parallel between Conservative leader Pierre Palavra and former U.S. President Donald Trump's MAGA populist politics. To limited effect, so yeah, so yeah, the strategists have all been trying this trick. Who cares? And of course, this comes off the heels of him doing the apple eating video, which got super viral. And people were like, yeah, we like this guy as opposed to Trudeau. It may not matter that Palavra is an all out is not an all out populist because the more of an anti incumbent movement, and of course because he talks about like the food thing and economics, and he does the typical Stephen Harper playbook of like the food, the farmers, and the taxes, and you know he's not exactly he's not even exactly Jeart Wilders, who is like actually wants to limit the number of Muslim immigrants in in uh, you know in Europe. A general trend of stability during the clown vid pandemic, which benefited the incumbent governments in more Western countries, has seen a stark reversal. While one of the world confronts high inflation that squeezed uh, house budgets, of course, uh, Trudeau is riding the wave of of a uh, you know anti clown vid measure, you know because of how brutal the the uh, the crackdown was here in Canada. While right wing while right wing populists have been racking up victories, it's not as simple as about. Uh, as about where they sit on the spectrum. Robertson points to the incumbent UK Tories that have been battled, battered by a polling nosedive that will look familiar to Canadian Liberals. Yeah, because they're not really conservatives, right? They're, 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 they're scum. And in fact, if they lose to Labour, they probably deserve it. Palaver is best described as con uh, conventional politician building a base of populist voters, said Henry Olson, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre, Washington Post columnist, and student of global populism. He is a Canadian version of a populist. I would say Palavra is a soft populist whose coalition is shaping up, shaping up to be a classic example of a populist conservative coalition because there's no other option in Canada, really. Um, he believes, Olson believes, that the traditional right labels 
Right-left labels are slowly becoming useless for the moment. Western conservative parties are building a new base of working-class supporters that are more likely to be in favor of government intervention, less likely to support core free market ideas like free trade. Good, I good. I know Palavra, he's not that kind of guy, though. He's he's still thoroughly marinated in the whole, like, Stephen Harperism of, like, the, the left side of neo the, the Sorry, the right side of neoliberalism, but, you know... He's really, I mean, what are you going to do? It's it's Canada. It's a slow drift, but Olson argues that we are in the third decade of a global populist era that kicked off in the late 1990s after China was after China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. The West was deprived of a unifying enemy after the Soviet Union, and since then the working class has been the primary victim of a cascade of elite failures. From the uneven distribution of gains from free trade to the Iraq War, the Great Recession and now the response to the clown vid pandemic and the cost of living crisis that followed it. Urban professionals whose primary votes for progressive parties have been on the winning end of many of these upheavals, Olson said. Quote, I think we have a quarter of a century of elite getting virtually every major issue wrong, said Olson. The elites. Um, oh, sorry, I'm clicking off an ad here. So I don't think it's an anti-incumbency. Throw the bums out sentiment, I think, is we no longer trust you as a class. And that sentiment is growing dramatically. It's why conservatives like Palaver and Malai have won over younger voters who have long belonged to the progressive left but are fed, uh, fed up and feeling like the econo economy is rigged against them. Wilders has channeled Dutch's voter anger over the cost of living and housing crisis as much as he has over immigration. Maloney managed to become Italy's first female prime minister, running on promises of economic reform and getting tough immigration, which he didn't. So that's kind of a bunk. Olson said that even when conservative, uh, even when conservative governments have been voted out recently, they were more likely to be centrist and technocratic parties that were getting overwhelmed by populist rivals, either on the left or right, kind of like the UK. Uh, anyone or anyone who represents the ruling class, whether it's politicians, the media, or academics has suffered from declining trust and new levels of skepticism from the public. The UK Tories briefly captured the hearts of the working class under Boris Johnson in 2019. Oh, God, look what, look what happened to that, right? On a promise to get Brexit done, but quickly got bogged down in details and then found post-Brexit migration numbers soaring to dizzy new heights. Yeah, thank you, Boris. Oh, thank you also for helping end the lives of 400,000 more Ukrainians. Because you you told uh, the the guy in in Kiev that uh, you know he has to keep fighting. You know you remember that right? When do you remember that? You remember that hit on when when Z Man was gonna take a deal with with the Putler, and then mysterious and then all of a sudden Boris Johnson flies to Kiev and makes sure that he rejects everything that. That Shoigu and that, uh, well, actually, the, the probably the negotiating parties was uh, Lavrov. That every single thing that Shoigu and Lavrov and Grasimov put in front of his nose that he rejects. Really, really, <laughs> you know, even Putler was going to meet with him. If it, when it comes to the real symbolic talks between, you know, Kiev and Moscow. So, uh, you know, there you go. Thank you, Boris Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. You really did a good job there. Really, like, really Churchillian levels of being a monster. Eh, that's, that's, let, let, let's save the Churchill bashing for people in the distant right who are more well-versed on the uh, crimes of Churchill. But anyways, 
But Pulaver's populist style may disguise a lack of substance on the issues that really matter to populist voters, said Eric Kaufman, a Canadian professor of politics at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom. I believe University of Buckingham was also the philosophy program that Roger Scruton crafted. Who has studied populist rise in the West. Pulaver is pretty com conventional, I'd say. In his view of both immigration and culture wars, he takes on some elements from the wider populist playbook, but he's not actually promising much concretely on the issues that are probably driving a lot of support for him. Yeah, does Pulaver want to put the woke away? No. Does Pulaver even want to get rid of Im immigration in terms of a complete moratorium? No. Does he want to kick them out? Certainly, hell no. You know, this is the problem with I have with Pulaver. There is evidence, for example, that Canadian attitudes are beginning to change about immigration, a subject where Pulaver has remained evasive. If the conservative leader sweeps to power in a populist wave, partially driven by immigration skepticism, he may find himself pushed into the more populist channel uh, cultural position. Yeah, but like Maloney was pushed before that. And look how she sh is, you know, she maturated the bed, right? Sorry, I gotta, you know. It's obviously dependent on why on what he does to satisfy the cultural concerns. But if he keeps immigration high, I think it's almost certainly going to lead to what happened here in Britain, which is widespread disaffection with the conservatives. And finally the last point last part, Palavra may be content to keep his focus on the quote common person and fight against the elites and gatekeepers. Olson describes this new division as the in versus outs. I guess Olson's been reading Wolbug. Um, rather than the conventional left versus right battle, which Pulaver himself describes as outdated. But of course, the, the, the left in Canada, they think he's an Austrian painter anyways. So who cares, right? Um, if it's true that many Canadians feel left behind in the new global economy and agree with the conservative leader that the country is broken, and this is a quote from him, it may not be long before the global wave hits Canadian shores. And of course, the libs, they're terrified of this. They're absolutely terrified. Like, this is why they have to... Like, Canadian lib... Like, Canadian rad libs, and, like, liberal boomers in particular, they're, like, more invested in making sure that Donald Trump does not get elected as opposed to the libs in the States. I'm not joking. This is true. This is true. Um, they're way more invested. You know what I mean? Like, because they think that if Trump gets elected by some crazy magic, um, that they're going to, they're going to like have, uh, you know, the, the States is, um, you know, the Mogots are going to annex Canada and they're going to live in the, in Gilead under Jesus land. And it's going to be over for them. I wish, I wish. But, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Maybe in the future. But no, it's not going to happen. But, you know, this is the problem with Palaver, though, is that he's really in an uphill battle. Because he knows he can't, like, embrace too much populism. He can't embrace too much anti-immigration sentiment. But I think that if he can just appeal directly to people that's going, that, who are going to vote for him. But if he's crafty like Stephen Harper, where he doesn't mention anything about immigration... He gets elected, then all of a sudden, suddenly the visas start churning, stop churning. The visas get denied. The refugees are sent home. You know, if he does it quietly, 
like what Stephen Harper did. This is what the libs fear. But he won't do it probably. I mean, he's he's too he's too conventional for this. But anyways, the greater point of this article. Thank you for listening to the Content Minded podcast, where every Wednesday there are interesting guests, amazing ideas, solo streams, and discussions on a diverse array of topics from art, philosophy, history, and more. The free version will be available both here on YouTube and as a downloadable link on Anchor and Spotify, as well as on Substack. Each week, the full, uncensored, and spicier version will now be available on both Patreon and Substack, where you will have access to the full archive of both content-minded and of giant reviews where I break down interesting texts every week, including other exciting paywalled articles and good content. Thank you all. Please like, share, and subscribe. God bless. Goodbye. Help keep the content renaissance alive. Too sweet.